Well, you guys can be seated. I'll introduce uh, our special, our speckled speaker, <laughs> our special speaker for this morning. Dalton Thomas is with us this morning. Dalton is the founder of Frontier Alliance International. Um, as we looked at as a mission team, we look at a special speaker every year for our Mission Sunday. One of the things that we liked about Dalton is he has a passion to teach the word. He also has a, just a great heart for evangelism. His and his, him and his family, Anna, they're three boys, and I think they have another boy that's due in a little bit here in November. So therefore, their baseball team is going to move to um, Iraq in a few months. And then they also have some friends with them, Jordan and Amanda. Would you guys, or Amanda's here, Jordan's out. In the, would you welcome Amanda and Jordan that are here with them as well? Jordan and Amanda will be going with them, a young couple moving with them to Iraq to help in the setup of a base camp in Iraq, a medical center, a base camp, and then they want to set up a center for training and doing evangelism in Iraq. So one other thing about Dalton is he's a movie producer, and he's produced some excellent films. We've seen some of those here. We had a showing last night. I want to show you a little, just a short, brief clip of the, the next film he has coming out, and then I'll have him come up and share with you. So if we... Have that clip, that'd be great. One of the biggest things that maybe working in the persecuted church has made me think about is what is my price? Where or what or with who is my price? Is money my price? Is the ones that I love my price? Is my uh, friends my price? Is the ministry at large my price? What's your price? So would you welcome uh, Dalton Thomas this morning? It's great having you here, man. Glad you. Glad you too, bro. Well, it is a privilege to be with you guys this morning. It, I love being around Calvary Chapel. When I was a new believer, uh, it was a handful of Calvary teachers, actually, that encouraged me to really take the Bible seriously. And as a young, junky surfer getting saved at 18 who didn't grow up in a Christian home, the extent of my reading was captions in surf magazines. R reading the Bible wasn't something that I had a huge appetite for, and I really attribute a lot of the hunger that came for it from a, a number of guys from Calvary Chapel. And so it's an honor to be here of deep affection and respect for the, the, the movement of what God has done historically through Calvary Chapel. So thank you for, um, and thank you for the, the leadership team here for, it's a holy thing to open up your pulpit to someone you don't necessarily know that well. So that is a, a nerve-wracking thing to do <laughs> for a leadership team. So uh, it's, an, it's an honor to be with you. Um, I'm not going to share too much about myself or what we do this morning. We're just going to get into the, into the, into the word this morning. Um, 
but I do want to make mention that uh, what we do do overseas and what we do in the Middle East and what we do in Iraq, we have films online. All of our films that we make are free online, so you can watch all of them for free. But we also print DVDs as well, so, and those are available here. And those DVDs go to the field. So if you purchase the DVDs, all that money goes to the field on the ground overseas in Iraq um, and other locations as well, but mostly Iraq. And so, uh, and honestly, I could tell you what we do, but you could, or you could just see it. And those films really show what we do, and you can see our world. You can see what we do and how we do it and why we do it. And so I'd encourage you, if you've got the resources to, to if you've got the means to purchase those DVDs, even if you watch them, just give them away. Um, the money will go to the field. And if you don't have the means, yet you'd still like to see it, um, just let Jordan and Amanda, these guys here, raise your hand. The guys that were here just stood up a few minutes ago. Just let them know, and we'll get you, we'll get you a copy if you'd like something but don't have the means for it anyway. So before we get into it, I want to invite you to stand for a moment. We're going to pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into it. Father in heaven. You are the Father of glory, the Father of lights. You are our Father. We thank you this morning that we can look to you and say, Abba, Father. That you are not a philosophy or a religion or an idea. You are our Father who loves us. You are good, you are kind, you are compassionate, you are slow to anger, you are just, you are holy, you are fire. There's no one like you. You are majestic, you are transcendent. You stand alone. You are supreme. You are immutable. You are holy. You are worthy. And Father, this morning we come before you, we open up the word in desperation, in coldness and fickleness, frailty, weakness, brokenness, compromise, the whole gamut. Lord, we come before you as a broken family this morning and ask you, because of who you are, God, draw near to us this morning. Because of your goodness, Draw near to us this morning. God, we thank you that you hear our voice. We don't speak into the air. We don't speak into a void. We speak to our Father in heaven who loves us. And we are grateful for your fiery affections and your loyal love this morning, God. That you love us. That you are for us. That your heart is open. You're not intimidated by our weakness this morning. You're not intimidated by how fickle and silly we are and trivial we are and petty we are. You are God. You are the Almighty. And you are awesome. And we adore you and we love you. And we want to love you more. And Father, I ask you today that you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, would take weak words and do something in us, something indelible, something marvelous. Come 
and do what you did to the boys on the road to Emmaus. Cause our hearts to burn within us for you. Not by power, not by might, but by the Holy Spirit. You are a living God. You are not dead. You are not distant. You are near. You are good. You are capable. You are able. Why should the nation say, where is their God? And why should we say, where are you? God, make yourself known to us this morning. Walk amongst the lampstands. Be in our midst. Father, I pray today that you would settle the traffic in our minds and in our hearts. Some of us are walking through really heavy things. Some of us are walking through trivial things that we think are really heavy. And Lord, we ask you today, wherever we are, all of us in our different experience, would you come and take what you know about your son and love about him and make it known to us. Declare your name to us. John 17, God, that we would love your son with the same love that you have for him. Take the love that is in your heart, Father, for your son and put it in us for your son. Make known what you see about Jesus. Let us see it and let us love him for it. Lord, we put no confidence in the flesh this morning, either in the speaking or in the hearing or in the receiving or in the obeying of the word. And so we fall at your feet in dependence and frailty and we boast in our weakness and we say, God, in the midst of our weakness, perfect your power here this morning. We boast in our weakness. Perfect your power in us. And I pray, lastly, that you would change lives this morning. That little subtle trajectory change. Do it this morning. Pray that you reorient lives this morning. That our lives would joyfully, with profound joy, that our lives would come under the authority of your leadership in a more consecrated, unreserved way this morning. Let us love you more and remove every hindrance to love in us. Blessed be your holy name, God. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, why don't you have a seat and open to Matthew 24. We're going to look at one verse this morning, um, but I want to give kind of a broad uh, a broad eagle-eye view to the context of this one verse before we look at this one verse in Matthew 24. The structure of the book of Matthew is very deliberate. Um, well, all of scriptures are very deliberate, but Matthew is a unique structure. There's a, a cycle in Matthew's gospel where he transitions from teaching to doing. For example, we see Matthew, the first few chapters, it's, it's historical stuff that's going on. And then Jesus sits down on the, on the Sermon on the Mount and teaches, Matthew 5, 6, 7. In Matthew 8 and 9, he does stuff. He heals the sick. He does stuff. Matthew 11, he preaches a sermon. He teaches about John the Baptist. Matthew 12, he does stuff. Matthew 13, he gives parables. And this is the rhythm and the cycle of the Gospel of Matthew. Teaching and doing. Teaching and doing. And we get to the end of the book, right before Jesus descends into the fiery furnace of Jerusalem for the carnage of Golgotha. And right before that happens, Matthew structures his gospel, impresses us with three of his final sermons to three different audiences in three different contexts with three different takeaway points. 
Matthew 22 through 25 is Jesus' final three sermons that he gives to three different audiences, and they're very important because they're his last ones. Now, it's different in different Gospels, but Matthew wanted his audience to understand these three sermons as being the final messages before he went and bled. So that's important to me. In the same way that John 14 through 16 is very important because those are his last words before he hung between heaven and earth and poured out his blood. The dying words of the God-man. The last statements of the man from Nazareth. They're important. And so Matthew 22, it's Jesus' final sermon to the public. The kingdom of heaven is like a king arranging a wedding day for his son. Isn't that an amazing final public message? Think about that. Jesus, how would you sum up the gospel to the public, to the broken masses? How would you define it? And he said, it's like a king arranging a wedding for his son. I want you to understand my father as a king who loves family, who loves to set the lonely in family, and who loves to arrange a wedding for his glorious son, which is why every single Disney movie ripped off that basic plot, because deep in the human heart is the longing for that story. Right? The poor peasant girl, the rich king, the bad evil enemy, cataclysmic conflict, the enemy gets shamed and destroyed. Right at the end, you think it's all going to turn to custard. And then the gal and the guy get married and they live happily ever after with the king. And we recycle that story over and over in a thousand different forms and expressions. And when it ends differently, we get mad because there's something in us that longs for that story because it's our story. Right? You see these artistic movies that just like end. You're like, no! <laughs> it's like the guys, you know, the hurricane comes and they all die. You're like, what? I feel betrayed. How'd you even know what happened on the boat if they all died? And then they all died. No, where's the king? Where's the bride? Where's the big fight? Where's the shame of the evil one? Where's the happily ever after? Where's the restoration of all things? Where's the justice? Where's the vindication? That's our story. Disney touched it and made bajillions of dollars. Jesus said it in his final sermon. That's our story, beloved. It's the final sermon Jesus gives to the public. And then he turns to the scribes and Pharisees and says, I have a different, I have a different movie plot for you. <laughs> it's more like Saw. <laughs> Which I've never seen. I wouldn't encourage anyone to watch them. But he turns to them and he basically says, damn you. A succession of seven curses against the religious leadership in Jerusalem. Scribes and Pharisees, woe to you. We kind of, you know, kind of like King Jamesify it and kind of like domesticate, like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You know, like count Mon or like uh, Monty Python kind of a thing. That's not what this is. This was scathing. Woe to you. That means there's damnation coming for you. You travel across land and sea to make one convert and you turn them into twice the son of hell that you are. You whitewashed tombs. It's scathing. 
And then he, the climax of that address is this. You kill the prophets. Therefore, I am going to bring consequences and you will be left desolate, you and your children. And I'm going away and you won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. In other words, until you welcome me back and honor me. Which is pretty crazy because a few chapters before that, they were saying, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord as he's riding into Jerusalem. And now, here Jesus is in Jerusalem saying, until you say that, the consequences of the vengeance of the covenant will bear down upon you. And so the disciples hear that and they freak out because they know their Bible. And throughout the Old Testament prophets, the desolation of Jerusalem was the preeminent sign that the end of the age was at hand. How do you know the end of the age is coming? When Jerusalem is sieged by all nations. So for them, they're going, when Jesus said that, they're saying, whoa, Jesus just got apocalyptic on us. The end is coming. So they ask him a question, which leads us into his third sermon, which is a private, tight-knit group, his disciples. His disciples, ignorant young people, average age, probably somewhere between 16 and 25 was the age of these guys. You know, you see them in the movies and they're like the old, you know, gray-haired dudes. These were young guys being mentored by a 30-ish year old rabbi. These were young men, confused about the subject of the end of the age. We can kind of all lump ourselves in that category. (laughs) So they say, Jesus, we're confused. If the end of the age, if Jerusalem's going to be left desolate, that means the end of the age is coming. So he, they say this to him, Jesus, in Matthew 24, verse 3, what are the signs of the end of the age and your return? They already had a consciousness that he would go and come. So he asked three things, signs of your return and the end of the age. And Jesus answers that. And here's the principle here. If you don't People who don't understand the subject of the return of the Lord and the end of the age, it's the people who go to Jesus and ask him to help them understand that get understanding. So they go to him and they ask him, help us understand. So he says, okay. And Matthew 24 and 25 is the final teaching before the upper room to Jesus' disciples. And he teaches them about the signs of the end of the age. In Matthew 24, verse 1 through 31, Jesus teaches them just raw events. There's not symbolism, there's not parables, there's not imagery, it's raw events. There's territorial language, there's specific geopolitical language, there's geographic language, there's tectonic language. He uses very stark literal realities, famines, wars, earthquake, desolation in Jerusalem, martyrdom, delivering you up to death, false prophets, falling away, love growing cold, endurance needed, betrayal happening, brother turning against brother. These are not symbolic realities. Let's take the word literal and just get rid of it. These are just, it is what it is. There's no, you know, oh, I don't agree with your interpretation, brother. I'm not interpreting anything. It's an earthquake. <laughs> it, well, what do you think he means by famine? Well, in the Greek, it says famine. <laughs> but he shifts in verse 32. 
And in verse 32 through the end of Matthew 25, Jesus tells seven parables. This is where the imagery is. He tells the parable of the fig tree. He tells the parable of as it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be when the Son of Man comes. He tells the, the parable of the thief. He tells the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. He tells the parable of the, t- the talents. He tells the parable of the sheep and the goats. He tells parables because he's saying this, as the great pastor, I want to take the information that I just told you through the stark realities of the end of the age and pastorally apply it to you to help you understand how you should live when these realities bear down upon you. And those seven parables tell us how to live, what to fight for, what to contend for, what to value, what to prioritize. And it's so, it's so sad that those parables get extracted and used for different purposes. Matthew 25 parables are connected to Matthew 24 realities. We cannot separate the context of them. In other words, if you're going to give a sermon on the talents, you need to understand the context of it is the end of the age. Give a message on the talents. The principles still stand no matter what. But the point is the context here is very explicit. It's about the end of the age. So that's the eagle-eyes view of these three chapters, or these three sermons. Last public sermon to the public, last sermon to religious leadership, last teaching to the disciples on the Mount of Olives before the upper room and everything began to unfold that led to Golgotha. We are going to look at verse 9 through 14, but particularly verse 14. When he's outlining, when he's outlining the events that that will lead to the return of the Lord and the end of the age, He describes verses 4 through 8. There's going to be these things called birth pangs, but it's the beginning, it's not the end yet. These are mostly seismic geopolitical conflicts and disturbances. Nation rising against nation, that means like a country against country. Kingdom against kingdom, that means group of nations versus group of nations. Ethnic conflict, ethnic strife. There will be wars and famines and rumors of wars, but this is the beginning, not yet. Then he goes to verse 9 through 14 and says there's going to be corresponding social pressures. In that hour, they will deliver you up to death. They will deliver you up to tribulation. They will put you to death. All nations will hate you. Yeah, well, my Bible school, Dalton, we were taught that Matthew 24 taught about, taught, teaches us about 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. Problem is, all nations weren't involved in that, and Jesus didn't come on the backside of it. So there's not much to work through there. (laughs) All nations will hate you. All nations will hate. Jesus, what's the sign of the end of the age? Four verses later, he says, everyone will hate you. A preeminent sign of the end of the age is all nations hating you, which presupposes then that the gospel of the kingdom has actually penetrated all nations. Which means this, there will be a final bloody push of the gospel into the final frontiers of unengaged people groups that will set the context for the final backlash that sets the context for the end of the age. How many of you have read Revelation chapter 6 and trembled because you didn't know what to do with that verse where Jesus, where John says, I saw under the altar those who had been slain for their testimony crying out in intercession saying, when will you avenge our blood? And the response from heaven is this, I'm not going to avenge your blood until the full number of martyrs comes in and are slain as you were. Which means this, a primary sign of the end of the age 
is the blood of the faithful being poured out upon the soil of the nations, particularly in what is right now hostile, unengaged regions of the earth. Think about that. If you were Jesus, if you were God creating a cosmic plan, would you hinge the end of the age on martyrdom? Jesus did. The book of Revelation, that is one of the primary catalytic events, signs, is global martyrdom, global persecution. Well, that's, that's morbid. Beloved, we follow and worship a crucified, murdered man. That's our faith. All I want to know, says Paul, is Christ and him crucified. There is a demonstration that God has deemed and saw fit that the nations will have a demonstration of Christ and Him crucified through the church crucified at the end of the age. He goes on, that many will fall away, many will betray one another, false prophets will arise, lead many astray, lawlessness will be increased, love will grow cold. Beloved, the first thing to go will be love. The capacity to have a tender heart. That's what we fight for. Not charts, graphs, and flannel boards. We fight for love on the inside in the midst of increasing conflict. Affection, love, tenderness. And then he goes on. And he gets down to verse 14, which is what we're going to look at. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. I want to make four observations about this text. In Matthew 28, Jesus gives us a command. He commanded us to go into all nations and to teach all that he taught and to make disciples of all peoples, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, there's a command to go into all nations. Luke 24, there's a command to go into all nations. Acts 1, there's a command to go into all nations. Romans 15, there's an invitation to go into all nations and lay foundations where there are none and name the name of Christ where it's never been named. But Matthew 24, 14 is not a command. Number one, it's a prophecy. It is a promise. It is an ironclad, sure as the dawn, sure as the sunrise, sure as the sunset reality. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, whether you and I are involved in it or not. I think one of the greatest toxins to the missions movement is thinking of ourselves higher than we ought. We are not heroes. Jesus is. The only people who are heroes are missionary wives. They're the only people that get the hero title. No one else does. He's going to do it with or without us. So let's start there. Because, you know, we can get up and I can, I can pummel you with statistics and beat you over the head with guilt. Do you know how many unreached people groups there are? You don't care. <laughs> and you're like, 
This guy's a jerk. I'm hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Beloved, whether you're hungry or not, whether you're getting involved or not, it's going to happen. And I'll tell you what, the load that gets lifted off your shoulders when you realize that all the resources of heaven are behind this thing is incredibly liberating. We don't have to do this. We get to do it. It's a privilege and an honor. It is no sacrifice. Is it costly? Yes. We count it and then we smile and pay it. Right? It's like the kingdom of heaven is like a a treasure hidden in a field. You find it. You sell everything you've got. You liquidate everything you own to buy it. Why? It's worth more. It's Mary of Bethany. You break your alabaster box. Why? Because he's worth more. Beloved, we don't have a missions problem. We have a knowledge of God problem. We don't know him. And because we don't know him, we don't care. It's not about missions. It's about the Galilean. It's about the man. You touch the man and missions all of a sudden fades into the background. And it's like, okay. Name it. What do you want? (laughs) And when we realize that it's a prophecy and a reality and it's going to happen and it's a promise and you can bank anything you want on it and it's more firm than anything in your life. (laughs) Crazy? It's firm. You want to give your life to something that matters and that's that's worth investing into? Try eternal purpose of God. And it's liberating. It's going to happen. He's going to do it. And I want to encourage you here. For some, for, you know, there was a long period of my life where I was like, Lord, what's your will for my life? What's my destiny? What's my calling? What am I supposed to do? And really what it, what look, the, this is how, if there's like a translator between heaven and earth and the way it was being translated to heaven to where he was actually hearing what I was saying, it was this. I'm insecure and bored and want people to think I'm cool. <laughs> right? Isn't that how our... Isn't that how our prayers translated to heaven when it's like, Lord, I just want to know your will and I want to be fully surrendered to you and stuff and I want to be really important and have lots of money and people to think I'm super cool. Wait, did I just say that? Yeah, you did. That's actually what you want. It's what we all want until we touch Jesus. And then you're like, I don't care if that guy thinks I'm cool or an idiot. I get him. You know? <laughs> what? How, the, how things become so petty and trivial in light of him. And in light of the fact that it's going to happen with or without us does not push me away from it. Invites, it beckons me into it. I get to get involved in something that's going to happen whether I'm involved in it or not, which makes me feel like, hey, I actually want to get involved in that. Because so often we, our God image is this. It's kind of like he was like, oh, man, I set that whole garden thing up. And then they ate it. They ate the fruit. I didn't want to eat the fruit. And now I don't know what to do. 
So let's paper rock scissors it. And Jesus lost. And so you got to do that cross thing, man. I'm sorry. And then he goes and then he dies on the cross. And then he's like, well, now we really need you guys to like go tell people about it. And if you don't, no one will know about it. And then, oh, Satan's going to win and stuff. Honestly, I feel like that's our God image so often. It's like he, God, in the words of A.W. Tozer, God got himself into a really big mess and needs missionaries to get him out of it. How often have you heard of the Great Commission communicated in that way? Like, you guys got to get involved. He's hurting. Our team's losing. Bad. You, you're thinking about a cheeseburger right now. You don't even care. I hate you. That's like what we feel, right? A lot of times at the Great Commission. Until we touch Jesus' actual teaching on it. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Will be. I don't encourage invoking the thus saith the Lord very often. Here's a time where it's appropriate. Thus saith the Lord. It's going to happen. I feel liberated. <laughs> Secondly, there's a mission here. If, it's, if it will happen, that means it can happen, and that means it should happen. Which means this, there's a mission mandate in this. And you go, oh man, I, my buddy needs to hear this. No, you need to hear this. Well, yeah, but I already know my calling. I want to encourage you guys to do something real quick. Just a little sh brief exercise. I want you to think back. Put yourself in the moment. I, I, know, I, know, I know you're going to go right there. That, it was that worship service. Maybe it was a conference. Maybe it was uh, a prayer meeting. Maybe it was a conversation with your husband, your wife, your kids, your mom or dad. Maybe it was at Starbucks. I hear there's a couple around here. Maybe you were, it was that, that moment though. That moment that you constantly go back to is that benchmark in your life. That holy, sacred moment in all of our lives where God drew near and spoke to us about our assignment and our calling to stay in America. Do you remember that moment? Me either. <laughs> oh, brother, I'm, not, I'm just not called to it, you know? Oh, okay. <laughs> Here's what I think. I think we need to take our own perception of our own individualistic callings and send them through the meat grinder of Scripture and see what happens. Because here's the deal. I don't want to talk. I actually talk a lot of people out of going to do frontier missions. Because some people are not called to it. And I don't want to talk anyone. If you, have, if, you're, if you are one of the, because there are. There are people in this room today who have a calling of God to be doing something what you're doing in the U.S. right now. I've met a whole bunch of you this weekend. I've been in complete awe of you. It's, it's real. I'm talking to the people who don't have that who keep telling people that you do and who keep telling yourself that you do. And what you've done is you've worked out a theology for yourself to stay in America because you like it. And you don't have a mandate to stay here. 
If you don't have a from heaven mandate to stay here, I want to invite you this morning to consider the possibility that scripture should have more authority in your life than your own perception of your personal calling. A statement by Jim Elliott rocked me as a young man. He said this, I don't need a voice. I don't need a voice. I've got a verse. In other words, this, I don't need the angel Gabriel to come to me to tell me that I should obey the Great Commission. If you think that God owes you supernatural leadership and direction for you to obey the commands of Scripture, you're living in deception. If you think that God owes you supernatural direction to obey the commands of Scripture, you're living in deception. You don't need a voice. The cool thing is, though, he gives us voices. He speaks to us. He guides us. He leads us. I'm encouraging those of you in the room who have not heard that direction to consider the possibility that maybe you're called to the what will happen. Some of you need to chuck your stuff and go. Like, I don't even know where to start. That's okay. No one does until they go. You know, my, my, my mom, I use my mom as an example often. My mom right now is working with extracted Yazidi girls who've been abducted and then rescued, and she's working in a safe house. My mom's a single, non-professional, worked, you know, three, four jobs when I was in school just to get food on the table, single mom. We, I got saved at 18. She got saved around the same time. She got abs, she touched Jesus. She liquidated all of her possessions. She sold her house and she left. My mother has more courage and boldness than most of the hipster young men that I meet today in America who are too busy grooming their beards and playing with Instagram and scrolling through Facebook and trying to buy a motorcycle so they can impress the girl so that she can stroke his broken, fractured ego because he's so bored with life and he doesn't have a vision or anything to do, so he plays video games and watches TV. I'm like, hey, yeah, sit in a room with my mom for an hour and get a backbone because the first thing that's being thrown into the lake of fire At the end of Revelation, the first thing listed that's thrown into the lake of fire is cowardice. We need good men. And I say, the lady's like, phew, I'm glad he's going after the dudes. Here's why I'm going after the dudes. Here's why I'm going after the dudes. Right now, the ladies are doing it. On the field, there is a seven to one ratio. So I'm thinking we need to tell these girls to stop going, you know? Even it out. No, our men are cowards and they're not responding to the authority of Scripture because of our own perception of our personal calling because really we're insecure and we want to be significant and we're looking for it in all the wrong places. If you're a young man today, I want to encourage you, don't waste your life Go bleed out somewhere. Go pour your life out somewhere. Go serve somewhere. Go give your life to something that really matters. And if you're feeling like I'm bullying you right now, I'm not bullying you, I'm serving you right now. 
This is for the, I'm not talking about the guy that he's settled in his calling, knows who he is, and he's doing what God's called him to do. I'm talking to the young man right now who doesn't know who he is and what he's doing, and he doesn't have an assignment. Beloved, I can help you get that assignment. I can help you find it. And trust me, it'll be a lot better than scrolling through Facebook and trying to buy that motorcycle on eBay. Thirdly, we see a message. It will happen. That's our promise. And if it will happen, it can and should happen. That's our ministry mandate. We also have a message. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations, then the end will come. We must proclaim it. Well, I'm kind of like an artistic guy. I just like to show like pictures and stuff. That's cool. I like showing pictures and stuff too. But we have to actually tell people the gospel. There's not a single person in here who got saved without hearing the gospel. Anybody? Anybody get saved without hearing the gospel? No, it's never happened. The gospel of the kingdom must be proclaimed and demonstrated. And lastly, we have a motive. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to all nations, and then the end will come. Yeah, but we're not, we're not, we don't want to, we're not interested in the end. We want to be about the now. We want to be about the kingdom and Jesus and the gospel. Well, what happens if the end is now? You ever think about that? It's like, oh, Noah, I'm just not really into the flood, bro. I'm into the here and now. And Noah's like, yeah, it's flooding here and now. <laughs> Jeremiah, I'm just not into the Babylonian invasion, bro. I'm about just loving God here and now. That's cool. Babylonians are at the gate here and now. <laughs> John the Baptist, I'm not really into this whole your redneck cousin from Nazareth is Messiah. What? <laughs> bro, we're into the here and now. Yeah, Messiah is here now. There's going to come a moment for the global missions movement where the end is upon us, and I think we're getting closer and closer and closer. Whether we see it or our kids see it or their kids see it, we are on a conveyor belt to the day of the Lord. We don't have an option or an opportunity or the luxury of stiff-arming the reality of the end of the age anymore. It is at hand. And so the, you know, we, we kind of divide up into these little camps. The end times guys go over there with their flannel graphs. The missions guys go over there with the orphans. The theology guys go to their seminaries, right? We divide up and the relief guys go over there and they set up soup kitchens. And Jesus is going, hey, why don't you guys get together and like do it? Because all this is together. Preach the gospel of the kingdom. Feed the hungry bellies. Prepare for the end of the age. We need to do this all in context and you better be biblically illiterate because we need to make disciples who know the word. So we are out of time. I'm going to close super, super fast by saying this. What doesn't produce missionaries and what does produce missionaries? What doesn't produce missionaries is statistics. Statistics move us for about six seconds and then it's gone and we want that cheeseburger obedience to scriptural commands does not produce missionaries. It may get you into it. The message at the conference about why you should go may get you into it. It won't sustain you in the midst of it. Compassion for hurting, broken, estranged people, that can move you for a season, but as soon as they betray you, steal your wallet, and call you ugly on the field and tell everybody that you're a jerk, you don't have much compassion for them anymore. 
And even the whole subject of the end of the age. I'll tell you what, some days I barely believe in God on Monday morning, so believing in the end of the age as a motive for it is not exactly something that motivates me. Did he just say he doesn't believe in God? I, you, you get what I'm saying, right? You wake up on Monday morning and you're just like, I don't, I just kind of want to be on an island somewhere and not really. I'd like to be my own God Monday morning. That'd be cool. My point is we are so fickle and so broken that statistics and scripture and compassion and the end of the age doesn't sustain us. Well, what is that the end of your sermon? (laughs) No. Here's what sustains us. Peter stood up in Jerusalem and said this, Jerusalem, after the crucifixion, cowardly Peter stood up and said, guys, you crucified him, you killed him. If you repent, he'll come back. I saw and handled, touched and heard him. I love him and I miss him. That produces missionaries. We don't have a missions problem today. We have a knowledge of God problem today. We need to touch him. We need to hear him and feel who he is. And we need to miss him. I want missionaries on the field who miss him and who will do anything to get him back. And honestly, that's the thing that will get you in, and that's the thing that will keep you going, hell or high water. That's why Paul could get his back ripped open, his skull crushed, his ribs caved in. He could get slandered about and dragged through town, and he would go right back in with a glowing face, with love and resilience and fortitude and confidence, because it will happen. And he is worth it. Rip my back open again. He's worth it. So... I want to pray for you, and we'll close. We'll close here. I invite you to stand. Father, I thank you for, I thank you that you set the lonely in families. I thank you that you've made a family out of us by the blood of your son, Jesus, and by the Holy Spirit that you've knit us together. Lord, I want to ask you today, and even as we, in this, I believe it is a consecrated moment where you, your eyes are upon us, where you want to do something in us. And Lord, some in this room are called to go down into the pit. Some are called to hold the rope. And I ask you, speak very clearly to everybody in this room right now, Lord. Speak. Who's to go down into the pit? Who's to hold the rope? Father, I pray, speak to us. But more than that, more than a ministry mandate, God, let us see your son, Jesus. Move us today on the inside, on the inward parts. Touch us and let us know your son. And I'm asking you today, put your finger on the wound of young men in this room today. Reorient their lives, God. Set them apart. Set them into something. I want to ask you right now, God, that you would consecrate and set apart young men in this room today. A tithe. Lord, would you give a tithe of young men from this congregation to the nations of the earth, to the Islamic world? Blessed be your name, Lord. We love you and we honor you.